I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Scarlett Russell, entertainment editor for the Sunday Times Style. And this is Secrets of the Side Hustle your go-to podcast to find out what it really takes to turn your passion into your career. Each episode, we hear from inspiring female founders who give us the lowdown on how they turn their side hustle into a thriving business. From baking for the stars to sex tech, disrupting the fast fashion industry and more, in this show, we get the ins and outs and ups and downs of setting up your own company whilst pocketing nuggets of advice along the way. On this episode, my guest is Sharon Shooter, founder of the beauty brand Oma, which creates a makeup range that is radical and uncompromising, an inclusive range suitable for all skin tones. Listed by Women's Wear Daily as one of the 50 most forward-thinking executives shaping the future of the beauty industry, Nigerian-born Sharon is on a mission to redefine the rules of inclusivity and diversity. I'm excited to chat to Sharon about what it takes to grow a successful beauty empire whilst truly disrupting the industry along the way. Welcome to Secrets of the Side Hustle, Sharon. Tell me about your business. Describe what it is and what it does. Yes, Alma Beauty is a brand that empowers everybody to love yourself exactly as you are. Beauty is the products that we sell and really the souvenir of the experience of our tribe members, as we call everybody. My philosophy of beauty was very different. The world's philosophy of beauty said beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. My philosophy of beauty has always been beauty is whatever the hell you say it is. And it's in your own hand and it's in your own power. And as such, beauty really starts the moment you decide to be yourself. And that is the founding principle of Oma Beauty. Yes, we sell color cosmetics products because we want people to be able to express themselves freely in full color and show up as yourself. And, and really that's what Oma Beauty is about. It's for all of the people who've been left out, all of the weirdos, all of the misfits around the world, because, you know, on some level, we all can relate on being left out. We all can relate to that. And so that's what Oma Beauty is. It's a radically inclusive beauty brand that continues to break down barriers, um, pull everybody in by empowering them to be themselves and love themselves authentically as they are. And in terms of the products, I mean, it is makeup. You have foundations for every skin tone. You have mascaras, lipsticks, eyeshadows, everything, right? Yes. We came out with a revolutionary 51 shade foundation range in 2019. The first ever customized formula 
well within the shade ranges to ensure that we are giving you a product that's suitable to your skin needs. So that was our first product that was really a claim to fame because it had never been done before. Apparently nobody has ever thought that the needs of light skin is completely different to dark skin. And so what you should be using should be different from what I'm using. And then obviously we do a lot of color cosmetics in terms of our lipsticks, our powders. We have our uh, Trippy Smooth powder that has been viral and, and, and we can't keep that in stock because of the unique technology in it. So yeah, so we do a lot of color cosmetics products. And the other uniqueness to us is we're the only beauty brand on the planet that is not stuck in a category. So you find Armour Beauty in Habanicos, but then we also have a sub-brand Armour Beauty by Sharon C carrying the same logo that you find at Walmart and it's actually coming into the UK shortly into Superdrug exclusively. So we are truly a brand that is for all. And we say beauty comes in every color, but every budget too, and every lifestyle. And we also have skincare within that portfolio, which is amazing. So we are able to cover a broad range of products and categories. And how many countries are you sold in? I mean, right now we're pretty much available in about 51 countries through our website, but in terms of physical retail locations, we're in North America. So USA, Canada, and we're in the UK as well. So tell me, Sharon, we'll go back a bit. You started the business in January, 2018, but you were working in the beauty industry for a long time before that on the more corporate side in London. You live in LA now. I can see the background. It's a pool. It's amazing. But you you were living in London. Talk me through briefly what your career in beauty was looking like in the lead up to launching Oma. I had had a global career within beauty. I'd worked with brands from Revlon, L'Oreal. And my last role was with Benefit Cosmetics, so with LVMH. And it actually was in Australia. I uh, moved to London to set up my new brand. My last days of my corporate life was really, at that point, I was truly dissatisfied with the status quo. That was really what my last few years looked like. I had got all the things that I wanted to get. I wanted to be the executive. I wanted to break the portfolio glass ceiling and do all of these amazing things. And eventually I was that. I got there. I got to be, you know, one of the youngest executives in LVMH history. So take that off the list. I had all the things I wanted. I had the husband, I had the house, I had a car, I had all of these things, but I was just not happy because I was not myself. I had to pay a price to get to that place, which was assimilating to become somebody else. And really that was what my last few years was like, you know, really tossing up. And, and like every woman, you sort of doubt yourself. You sort of go, oh, I can't do anything. How can I change the world? I'm too little. So really my last two years, I, I was in Asia Pacific, leading a very large team, and then finally made the crazy decision to quit everything, walk away, move to a completely different continent, which is where I ended up in London and then set up on my beauty and then eventually ended up in Los Angeles. So it's been a journey. What was the deciding factor to leave and start up on my beauty? It sounds like you're in corporate jobs, so probably paying pretty well, probably quite secure, but you weren't happy. But what was the breaking point where you got to the point where you were like, I need to quit? quit it all and go and start this business and also add to that were you doing anything on the side like whilst you're still in that job was Oma Beauty kind of getting started on the side of that I think it was a build-up it was happening over a few years I was sensing myself change in the younger part of my career making money and climbing that ladder was all I cared about I cared about nothing else nothing else and I was going to get there at any cost even though it meant changing my name oh yeah let's do that like yeah I'm, I'm let me give you an Anglo-Saxon name so that you don't mind giving me that job even if it meant changing my appearance oh you can't wear braids absolutely braids a ghetto is career limiting oh absolutely you tell me who to be and boom you adopt that your accent oh you know your accent sounds African you know we don't you know you know you get the little subtle tones about you know you're not going to go very far with an African accent so you throw that out and you you give yourself a really Anglo accent so I literally became I had to shake myself up to be a person where when you hear me on the phone you couldn't physically 
understand that I was a black woman. We call it code switching. You get into this place where you assimilate a persona because, you know, it is needed because before that persona, I was going nowhere. And then you adopt that persona and you become accepted into the party. But over a period of time, what I realized when I got to the top was that I was on the top, but I wasn't myself. And that was really when I started to value that the most important currency in the world is being yourself, because that's what's going to make you happy deep down inside. Not the cars, not the house, not the job titles. If you are not yourself, you can never express. I also got to a point where I started to realize the impact of what I was doing by working with these brands. You're working with a brand that makes foundation and concealer shades in three shades. Are you kidding me? The impact of that, especially for me as a woman of color, understanding that being born in my skin is to understand from a young age that you're different, but not different good. You're different bad. And you spend your whole life trying to convince people that you're different good and not different bad. Now, every single point you touch in life, you are reminded that. And can you believe you're reminded that even on the points where you have the money and you're trying to spend it, you're still begging people, please take my money, please make something for me. Now, this is mentally debilitating because it's just every point in your life reinforcing that you are nothing and you are literally less than human. And I got to this realization. And the second part of that realization was there was such a thing as culpability through complacency. Because a lot of times you go, well, I didn't create the problem. I wasn't the one who created the foundation. I'm just doing a job. I need to feed. I need to survive. Well, maybe I'm making my own impact by being here. And for me, I wanted to make a more direct impact. I wanted to spend the rest of my life in service of to the planet. Because for me, you know, serving the planet and making sure that whatever we do with our time here to make the world move forward, because I will not be here talking to you if the people before me didn't fight and put their life down to make sure we could be having this conversation that we're having right here. So for me, I got to a point in time where I realized that making the world a better place is a full-time job and it's the day job and it's the day job I wanted to do because it is the rent I pay for the life I've been given. And when you see the world from that perspective, you realize you don't care about anything. I didn't care about losing money. I didn't care if I slept in my car. I didn't care about anything. I didn't care if I got divorced. I didn't care about anything because I realized that I am standing on the shoulders of giants who got me here. What am I going to do with that? Am I just going to sit and then absorb it to myself? Or am I going to pay it forward to make sure that the next generation has it a little bit better? And if we all do that, very quickly, we're going to resolve all this problem, which the stupid problem we're trying to resolve is people keeping their business to themselves and understanding that we are all okay the way we are. And if it doesn't kill you, shut up, keep it to yourself. And that's the that's what we're trying to fight. So, so for me, that was really the point. And like I said, even though I got to a place where I knew that I had to go, I had to leave. I could no longer be part of this ecosystem. I want to be poor and helping other people feel better. So for me, the journey of Alma Beauty was personal therapy for me. It was me accepting myself. It was the first time in my life I started to grow my hair naturally. People don't even understand this. You will probably won't be able to comprehend this. As a Black woman, I was a whole 32 years old before I could tell you what my natural hair actually looked like because it's been straightened since I was three years old and just continue straightening it so you can absorb. All of these things I wanted to make sure I spoke about and I actually make people understand they are perfect the way they are. Do not do not listen to people telling you can't wear braids, it's ghetto. Um, it's your heritage, it's your culture, we're proud. For me, I felt left out because of the color of my skin and being female. For other people, it's for so many reasons, the size of their body, who they love, their gender, you know? And so, and so the work that I wanted to do is really go out there and be an evangelist for self-love so people can accept themselves whoever they are, show up yourself, wear that tuck 
asks you to work, you don't have to cover it. And if your job tells you to cover it, find a new job because that's not the right place for you. So that's really why I left. And then did I do anything on the side? No. I'm a person of extremes. I'm either in or out. I do not know how to do things in between. So for me, I actually gave my job at first one year notice. And then as I moved through my notice period, I realized that they were in a good place. I had hired my, my replacement. So I left within a seven months. So I made sure that everything was perfect. Everything was fine. I had my replacement. We did a handover. I opened up to the company. I pretty much was almost consulting for them for another five months to make sure that if this person needs anything, I'm here to support you. And then I left. So why did you decide to move to London of all places from Australia? The message I was talking about, especially when you're talking about uh, the message of inclusion in Australia, Australia has a very small population of people of color. So it's not really as relevant there. Like, of course, it's relevant. Of course, you have to do that. But, you know, the things I'm talking about, it's a small percentage of the population that actually impacts. So that's not really the right platform to actually launch something like this. And that was why I had to come back onto this side of the world. Also, I understood even from manufacturing, even from operations, it was going to be limiting starting a color cosmetics brand from Australia. Australia's not a huge color cosmetics market. USA is the largest color cosmetics market in the world. So if you really want to conquer makeup, you want to come here and figure out because if you can make it in USA, you can make it anywhere. And so for me, I love doing hard. And so I was not going to do it easy. So I was like, well, USA is number one. And then UK is more a skincare market than a makeup market, but it's so close to Europe, you know, in terms of manufacturing and suppliers. My ex-husband was British, so I had the rights to work there. And so uh, it just made more sense for me to come down to Europe, be in a better time don't have access to suppliers. Sharon's told me all about leaving her corporate job at Benefit Cosmetics in Australia to pursue her passion for Oma. I asked her, once she'd quit her job and moved to England, what the first steps were to get her business started. The first thing you do for me was create a deck. I'm a strategist, so I need to see where I'm going to. So I spent a lot of time just fine-tuning exactly why am I doing this? What do I want to achieve with this? Most founders create the product and then retrofit the brand into the product, right? I was different because like I said, for me, I was creating a movement, not really a business. So for me, it really started with why am I doing what I'm doing? What, what is at the heart of it? What do I really, really want to achieve? Because when I started, I didn't actually know I was going to do beauty. I was actually adamant that I was not going to do beauty because I'm not going to be the beauty chick who's the girl who was in beauty her entire career. I'm going to go do something else. The first thing for me was really articulating the values and the beliefs and the truths of the brand and what I wanted to do from that front. And once you do that, everything starts to birth from that because, and, and that's why it goes almost a reverse psychology way of doing it because people go, oh, I want to be a color cosmetic brand and they start making the lipstick and they start making the foundation. I didn't do that. I said, no, hey, I want to create a radically inclusive culture around beauty. I want a speak up culture. I want people to be proud of their culture, proud of their heritage and understand that culture does not divide us. It actually unites us because it makes us respect each other because we understand our differences versus not seeing color. All of this were all of the things I first articulated, broke down, what are the brand beliefs? What are the brand truths? Which means what are the brand's values? And as a result, what is our mission and what is our vision? When I first did this, I went to a celebrity. I went to a celebrity and said, I have no interest in being the face of a brand. I just want to operate from the background, be the face, 
this is the values. It aligns with yours. And the person said no. And I was so pissed off. I was like, you know, I'm going to do it myself. And that's how I named the brand. And it was this anger. So it was a whole journey of little steps and little things that keep moving you. And then you get to that point, you go, okay, let me create a visual identity for this brand. Then you start to create that because now you can create a logo based on the values. Um, then you go, okay, let me register this because this is looking good. I'm going to register this business. Okay. Let me get my domain names. Let me register all of those things. Let me get a trademark. And, you know, so it's one incremental step at a time. Okay. Now, what are the products I want to do in here that can showcase the value that you start the products? Okay. Now I got the products. What retail channels do I want to sell? You go chase the retailers. So for me, the starting point and the first point was articulating very, very clearly what is the mission, what is the vision, which came out of the brand's values, its truths, and its beliefs. So where did that name actually come from? How did you land on Oma Beauty? I chose to name the brand in my language. Oma is the Igbo word for beautiful. So my name is Ifoma, which is beautiful thing. And so I wanted the world to feel beautiful because I mean, Oma beauty literally is beautiful beauty. That's what it actually means. It's a double statement of how beautiful you are. And so they could not have been a more powerful name. And for me as well, because I gave up my name. I gave up, my birth name was Ufoma Sharon Jemidafe. And I gave up that name. I moved my middle name into my first name. That's where you get the Sharon from. So it was very, very, it was almost like, a double blessing that I was able to I wouldn't say right the wrong because there was nothing wrong about it because I voluntarily changed my name because I knew I wanted to have a global kind of career nobody forced me to do that but I wanted to come back into authentically my language. So there was this anecdote Sharon which I read about actually making the products and finding a laboratory so you're living in London and you're going into the lamb I I couldn't find models of colour at any agency I had to go out and cast on the streets and through WhatsApp I mean and this is only like not even five years ago right so tell me about that aspect of it and how you got into labs how you got all these models yes i mean that's the disgraceful part of this industry i know people see inclusivity as and you know some people just see all oh, this word that i can't stop hearing about and people are woke and la 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 park all of those misconceptions to the side of wokeness right um the reality is you go out there you're in milan and no modern agency has a girl who's darker than rihanna Literally, you think about the spectrum of skin shades. We have what we call the Fitzpatrick scale based on the skin color. Rihanna is in prototype three. There is four, there is five, there is six. Most beauty products on the market, almost majority of even skincare products, I will go 99% of skincare products are not even tested from prototype four to six because they, they don't, don't consider that it matters. So where there's no demand, there's no supply. Fashion shows, they always have the, who's the token black person you're going to put on that runway. So the agency is a liability to have all these black people on the books because you have one, you have enough, right? And so for me, we, we just couldn't find a skin texture. And then I'm walking on the streets and all these beautiful, beautiful dark skinned women everywhere. So I'm like, yo, I'm going to be that mad crazy stalker. Hey, you're gorgeous. Would you like to come to the lab with me? I swear I'm not a pimp. I'm not trying to like, you know, this is not a sex trafficking ring. I'm legit. I just need your skin, you know? So, um, so it was hilarious, but that's how crazy of what uh, of what you actually have to do even up to today is still a struggle i'm fighting with the guys in the lab 247 they're testing colors uh, for dark shades on light skin and i'm asking them how can you see it so the first product you made was foundation how was that sort of process of finding a lab and knowing what lab to, to go for Yes, you know, always people think that, oh, you came from the industry, so you knew everybody and you had the Rolodex. And the reality is not. You move markets and it's it's completely different. That was the craziness of like moving out of Asia Pacific where you have all your contacts. When I tell people, they don't actually believe me when I go that everything I did from this brand was through Google. 
you think about what Google is, it's the world's biggest repository. So everybody like, who's your mentor? Google, because anybody in the world can be my mentor. How did you find labs? Google, like there is threads, there is forums and everything. You see all the teams talking and little chat rooms. They're talking about this is the best manufacturers. They're giving feedback. These manufacturers are crazy. Don't touch them, blah, blah, blah. So there was just so much. So I actually figured out all the labs I wanted to work with of that and then reached out to them, got to know them, got to check the capabilities. And these were the biggest labs in the world. And so, uh, so really pitching my idea to them because really, I mean, they, why should they work with you? They work with all the biggest brands in the world. Why should they touch you as a brand who they don't even know if you can pay them for the goods they're making for you, you know? So for me, that's really how I went through the process and then identified the right labs. From a product perspective, I actually launched 108 products. I launched with a 51 shade foundation range, a 90 shade concealer range, a contour highlighter stick, 16 shades of one lipstick, eight of another, eight of another. So it was a full range launch. It was mad. It was at the time, the biggest makeup debut in the history of color cosmetics, because not even Fenty launched 108. They launched with about, you know, 60 to 70 SKUs for me, because I'm a product junkie. I just kept, and I had actually created about 195 and also had to go, we cannot fit this on a gondola shower. <laughs> You got to cut it back. And so really my first year and a half of launch, I was just launching the things I'd already made before, before setting up. And I just faced them and staggered them. And from a category perspective, when I actually was going to debut at first, I was not going to launch foundation because it's difficult. It's a difficult one to debut with. It's a lot of skew counts, which means a lot of capital needed to actually power it. And I remember I actually pitched to a retailer because I was going to launch the brand first in Africa, because I was like, it's an African inspired brand. I want to launch in Africa. Africa and take it to the rest of the world. And I remember going to this buyer to actually pitch to her. And she looked at me and she said, look, the concept of this brand is amazing. The collections are amazing, but what you have is a collection of collection. You don't have a portfolio. How can you be talking about inclusivity, but you have done nothing in complexion? You can't be here talking about inclusivity, but you're selling lipsticks because, you know, show us what you're made of. And, you know, that's the incredible thing about life. I could have walked out of that meeting and said, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to show you or whatever. I walked out of that meeting. Of course, I felt like crap. Of course, I wanted to go in there and get the standing ovation of how this is genius and revolutionary. But I came back and locked myself in the room for, for three days, came out of that three days. And everyone was like, how did the meeting go? I was like, great, amazing. Didn't really tell anybody. And then went, you know what? This person is right. I have to challenge myself. So this was now even really late in the play when I had started working on foundation. And I was like, because I was overthinking it before. I was going to do this huge blue sky concept that was going to take three, four years to get to the market. And I was like, no, I'm going to simplify it. I'm going to bring it to life through this Fitzpatrick scale, through this skin kin, and I can actually get this innovation to the market faster. And so that's really my journey. And in the end, I remember pulling that together and pulling the foundation and bringing this. And I I remember walking into the room with my agency partners at the time and I said to them, look, I've created a whole new bunch of products and now we have to make this holistic and then represented everything. And I remember the strategist turned around and saying to me, you know, Sharon, what you had was a bunch of singles. This is the album. And I will never forget that. <laughs> so did you launch in Africa initially? No, in the end, I chose not to. So the same retailer who had said, no, you know, get your act together. By the time I came back and showed them what I was going to do, they were like, oh, my God, we need to launch you now. But unfortunately, at that time, Ulta had come in, Selfridges had come in. And because this retailer were a little bit hesitant, I really didn't think it was a good gamble to turn down these other retailers who are professionals at building brands to go into a retailer who sort of, I mean, they were amazing, but compared to the others, a bit non-committal. And that could mean the death of your brand. If you launch in the wrong place, you don't get the right support 
support, you don't get the right nurturing, you're going to die before you even started. So then I, I had to make the tough decision and just go, hey, I'm just going to focus and do this here and then take it back home. And so it's been amazing because we end up retail, we still talk, you know, every year they're like, are you coming in this year? And I'm like, no, the right time. And lucky I didn't do that because I didn't have the infrastructure to be able to run a brand within South Africa, especially not being from South Africa. It would have been easier for me to do that from Nigeria, but I'm still going to launch with that retail at some point. We're still going to do Africa, but Africa is such an important market for me that I want to make sure that I do correctly, that it's not a cash grab like what other brands do. And I give it the respect that it deserves. You're listening to Secrets of the Side Hustle with Scarlett Russell. There'll be more secrets coming up just after this. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Secrets of the Side Hustle with Scarlett Russell. Let's jump back into where we left off. How were you funding this, Sharon? Like, was this your own savings? I read somewhere that you sold your house. Is that true? Yes, yeah, so every founder does. So uh, when I left Australia, I liquidated everything and left the country. The first million bucks in the company was mine. And then, of course, when you're doing a 203 store launch, I mean, just in inventory alone, I had to purchase over $2.2 million worth of inventory. You know, it's the reason why I didn't even hire a team until about three weeks to launch because I was really conserving cash. I was only able to raise capital weeks before launch. So I was fortunate in the end to raise money because this is a part that nobody teaches you when you're corporate. How do you raise money? How does that ecosystem work? What is the difference between an angel investor, a seed investor? What is different between a series A, series B, series C? You know, who's venture, who's private equity, who's a family office? Nobody gives you all of this. And so I spent a lot of time. It was the hardest part for me in this brand, like the raising capital because it's an ecosystem shrouded in secret. And one that 
to meet investors, you have to be introduced to investors. Doesn't go on Google and then just reach out to an investor on Google. They will not respond back to you. So it's a very close community that you have to break through and through breaking through, start navigating through it. So I raised about three and a half million dollars right before I launched the brand, which came in very handy to be able to support the marketing and the whole infrastructure. But yes, I started with my own money, about a million bucks of that. And then investors put in another three and a half million and then followed in with another two million. So I've only raised money in my initial year my initial six months of the brand and I raised five and a half million. And after that, I decided that really I want to just run a disciplined business that can run itself. How many people do you employ now? We are a global team of almost 50 now, and that's excluding our field sales team in Nordstrom, but including our field sales team in the UK who are on our books. So it's been a crazy journey. And at a point last year, we were a lot larger and I had to scale it back down because more people, more problems. You think, hey, when I hire more people, life's going to get easy. No, it gets harder. And so I learned that there was a cusp of where you need to keep it. And you almost need to defend that size. So for me, I'm trying to defend 50 to 75 for as long as I can before expanding beyond that and allowing the team grow beyond that because you need to have the systems, the tools, the process for anything larger than that. Anything in that zone, you guys can be a tight, intimate family and sort of like have that entrepreneurial spirit. Anything bigger than that, you, you really can't control anything anymore. How did you get to launch in like these major places? Did you find people were knocking down your doors offering you know, wanting the product, like how did they know about it? And how, how did that happen initially? You know, everything that's happened to me was just by staying true to who I am. Even meeting Alter, I knew of Alter, but I didn't have any contact there. There's no retail I launched with that I had the name or number beforehand. There was no investor I had the name or number beforehand. Everything is just being crazy and going out there and living your truth. With Alter Beauty, I actually met them because I went to an event where nobody would talk to me because beauty is very incestuous and everybody's been there for 20, 25 years. They talk to each other, but they don't talk to you. So I was sitting on the edge everything in me said leave just go go back to your hotel room whatever and I was like I'm not going nowhere I paid to be here I'm gonna go sit on the table get myself a fat glass of wine and drink my damn wine and that was exactly what I planned to do when I got to this table random table sat there poured my wine drinking it people were talking to themselves then the guy next to me starts talking to me I was like oh finally somebody decides that I actually exist chat with him and he's like oh what do you do so I'm talking to him about this concept I'm also just complaining about just the state of the world and the industry and the lack of inclusivity and these other people across the table just kept leaning in listening and started asking me a lot of questions and I was like wow you're really nosy but I, you're lucky I'm chatty I don't have anywhere to be so I'm just being my authentic self and this guy said to me so what are you going to do about it I was like oh I'm launching a beauty brand it's going to change the world and so he started probing really deep why is yours going to be different to anybody's why do you think you can succeed when everybody has failed who tried to do it and I kept going and going and he says do you have any retailers? I was like, no, I would love to. He was like, have you ever considered Alter Beauty? Now, it turns out that person was David Kimball, who's the current CEO of Alter Beauty, who was sitting right next to me. At the time, he was the chief merchandise officer. He was sitting right next to his two vice presidents of, one was vice president of mass. The other one was vice president of prestige. So came out of that. And then for the next three days of those conference, they were amazing. They took me everywhere. I turned up to Bolingbroke. They invited me to come present to a team of like, I think there was like 15 people in that room. Within two weeks, I had a contract in my inbox and it was exclusive loan, 203 stores. So everything happened by accident. Selfridges, my friend Fumi Feto, she's like, I know the buyer Selfridges. I'm like, okay, I know they're going to be doing a refurb in two years time. So let me go and just tell them this exists. So they have me on their radar. When they pitch, came back out. They called me and asked me, when do you think about launching? I said, oh, maybe I can launch one year after launch. And they said, no, we want you to launch in April. This was December. And I was like, huh? The brand launches in April. They were like, yeah, uh, this was right before Christmas. Can you do it? And I was like, oh, absolutely. Like, 
totally, I had no idea how I was going to pull a whole retail launch in three months with no team. So that's how Selfridges happened. That's how Ulta happened. And then after we launched, we were out there with our message. People really, the way the market adopted us, we went viral overnight. And then, you know, other retailers started reaching out. There is no retailer we've reached out to. Every single retailer, we're the ones who knock back retail partners and say, not now, not the right time. So we've been very fortunate, but I go, it is the importance of having values and not deviating from them and knowing that these are my value set. Because when I first launched, people said, you're divisive. Your message is divisive, right? Because the world wasn't ready for that message. They weren't ready for somebody to speak in color and speak about color in that level of directness. Talk about black or white, talk about experiences. And so for them, it's it's very uncomfortable, especially in the UK. Brits are very uncomfortable having tough conversations. It's like, oh, I don't see color. And coming in to actually tell people you should see color because when you don't see color, you disregard me. You say I don't exist. You're expecting me to blend to be like you because I am not like you. I am different in the same way I respect who you are. I wanted to respect who I am and then we come together the first article written about me was Vogue magazine and literally they said it was such a shame that I had beautiful products that were shrouded in divisive messaging um they called the brand post-inclusive called me an African elite who was out of touch you know but I didn't deviate my investor said hey change the message everybody said drop the message focus on the product and I was like I have no intention to do that and then People caught on, the world changed, the world moved on and people realized, no, this is the truth. And after that, it's just been a just crazy acceleration. I couldn't have dreamt this up, um, but it's the value of staying to your values even when they're not popular. Was that American Vogue that said that or British Vogue, which Vogue? It was American Vogue. I mean, we've made peace now. I mean, Vogue and, and I were great partners, but, and, and same with British Vogue. And what it was so interesting, like this year when I got listed by British Vogue as one of the 25 most influential women in England, and I was go, what a full circle moment coming from, you know, you're divisive. I mean, it wasn't them in particular, but that publication or that condenast building, declaring the brand post-inclusive and a bad idea, and then coming around three years later and having such an amazing relationship with the team and them now recognizing that now, no, that is impact and that is changing the world. So it's a real full circle moment. I read that you work 134 hours a week. So tell me, Sharon, what in earth are you doing in this time working something especially right now like when I see a lot of the conversation about wellness and balance and whatever and I always tell people there is sowing season and there's reaping season it's like a mother birthing a baby and the baby is one month old and you're saying oh my priority is sleep oh you're delusional you're not going to get any sleep um you know you will be awake every two hours your your tits are going to be very sore right so there is a time for everything and when you birth a brand you literally have birthed a new baby so at that point in time you have two choices and you have to understand what i always tell people understand the assignment you're taking on if you're going i want to launch a brand that is going to go global is going to scale is going to become mid eight figure revenue in less than three years achieving feats that nobody's achieved before for, but you think you're going to do it while you're wearing yoga pants, going to the gym and climbing the mountains and having Zen, you're delusional too. So from when you start, ask yourself, how much am I prepared to do? And that's the most important and honest question you can ask yourself, right? Don't be trying to be CEO if you want to clock in at eight o'clock and I want to clock out at four o'clock or nine to four o'clock. That is not the life of a CEO. So you need to know what you're signing up for. And that's why CEOs are paid a lot because half of your payment is for not knowing your kids' names, all right? It's, it's for the lifestyle you live. That's why you're compensated for. So for me, I was very clear. I wanted to start a movement. I was really dedicated to this movement and it became am I willing to do the work? And the answer was, yes, I'm willing to do the work. Because when you start, everything is on you. 
you don't really have much support. So it's not like you start up your brand and you can hire 30 people to come and work for you so that you can manage your workload. When I started this brand, I was supply chain. I was product development. I was marketing. I was creative. I was everything. I was customer service. I was everything. How do you do that in an eight hour day? The answer is not possible. Um, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and you're only one person. So you start to stretch yourself and that's where the discipline comes in. That's where what we call paying your dues. Because the reality is because I stretched myself and did all of those things, I'm a better executive for it because I know this business in and out. I know every single angle of the business because I did every single aspect of the business at a point in time. So for me, it was a choice that I made because in stepping into this space, accelerating and not slowing down the growth and going, I'm going to lean into this, I'm building a unicorn. The reality is in the first four years of building a unicorn, it takes a lot of personal sacrifice. Kobe Bryant was Kobe Bryant because he trained on season, off season. Tom Brady, on season, off season. So literally the output is always an indication of the input. And so that's why I worked that hard because the reality is, you know, I'm one person, I'm doing this podcast, but I still have to run my operation. I'm running a global operation. I am literally running, running. I'm having to draft campaigns. I'm having to write a book. I'm having to go speak and do my, for my community. Okay. But I'm a woman. So I have to be glam. My hair has to be done. My nails have to be done. My clothes have to be okay. There is only 24 hours in a day, but you still got to get it done. So, so really for me, that's how it looks like. And now it's slowing down. You know, now I have stronger teams. I have now C-suite employees that I can delegate more to. So no, am I today now doing 134 hours? I'm not doing 134 hours anymore. I used to work 22 hour days. Now I'm working about 16 hour days. And over time, it keeps dropping. I'll get to a point in time where I'm working four hour days. I'll get to a point in time where I'm probably going to be on a boat and not working at all and just, you know, chatting with people on the boat. But you pay your dues here to get to the place where you can have a global company that's running itself, where people are calling you twice a week to ask you, what should I do? And you're like, do that. And you don't really care. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're not really doing the work anymore. It has been a real pleasure getting to know our female founder on this week's Secrets of the Side Hustle. But I want to go just that little bit further and find out something about them or their business that isn't common knowledge. It's time for Best Kept Secret. Because we're a brand who speaks so much about diversity, we, we talk directly to race, we talk a lot about empowerment and being a black founder, people just assume you're an ethnic brand, meaning that you're a brand by people of color, only people of color is a crazy thing. Now, here's what shocks people about my brand. 66% of my shoppers are white. Firstly, it shouldn't blow people's mind because that's representative of the population of America, right? It's almost under-indexing on that shopper. But people just assume I'm a brand where 90% of my shoppers will be Black and the rest will be people of color. So it really surprises people, even though it's, a, it's really a dull fact. It's like 66% of my shoppers are white. And that also came very strongly to debunk the idea that we were divisive because, you know, we had people sitting there going, yeah, I want to be part of this because, you know, this makes sense. I want to shop in a brand where me and my multicultural friends can shop together versus us living in segregated spaces. So that always surprises people about us when I tell people 66% of my shoppers are white women. And that really speaks to the mission and what we do, which is bring people together, bring the world together and create a space where everybody feels safe and everybody feels welcome because my shopper base are reflective of the diversity of the human race. And especially because I'm majority North America is representative of the American population in having very strong Latinx audience, very, very strong Black audience, very strong white audience, very strong Asian audience, very strong Middle Eastern audience. So I'm very proud of that, but that is actually a thing that shouldn't be a secret, but blows people's mind when they find out, including retailers, to be honest. Sharon has spoken a lot about her success being down to staying true to herself. 
Being confident in the vision for her company and its mission to be an inclusive global beauty brand. As a parting question, I asked Sharon for her best practical advice that all aspiring founders should take on board to be a successful entrepreneur. There's three pieces of advice I give entrepreneurs. First is, ask why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you want to set up a business? And you need to answer that question. And it's the most important question you're going to ever answer in your entire life cycle. I see a lot of people go, I want to start up a business because I'm fed up in my job. That's not the reason to set up a business. <laughs> you know, I want to start up a business because I want freedom and flexibility. I'm sorry, you're not going to have any freedom and flexibility. Whatever hours you think you put in as an employee, you're going to triple that as an entrepreneur because now your life is on the line. Your house is on the line. You know, it's now personal. All that money with corporation you can spend on company credit card, it's now your credit card and it's your your credit card other people are spending in the way you were lashing out other people's money so the first part of it is really ask yourself why because when you ask yourself why you can be honest with yourself and you can also tell yourself what type of business and what pace you want to grow the business which also tells you how hard you want to work on that business so if you're going hey i just want to do this because i want my sanity i just want something i can control that's amazing you can set up a business but Probably set up a business that's more akin to a mom and pop shop where you open that door at nine o'clock and you close it at five o'clock. But then don't be angry that you're not one of the unicorns, that you're not on Forbes magazine cover and you're not, you know, building a you know three billion dollar brand. So manage your expectation first by asking yourself, why am I doing this and what's important to me? Because that will set the tone for everything else. A top in your own journey it's a journey of ups and downs and the ups and downs happen even within the hour your emotions are swinging your mental health will never be more challenged than when you're an entrepreneur people don't talk about this a lot but the rate of entrepreneur suicide way over index anything else the rate of entrepreneurial depression way over index most careers because it is crazy everything is on you you are making decisions two four seven and they have to be correct right so people have to be mindful and understand that that entrepreneurship is not the easy path it's not the path to find refuge from your corporate life you know when you're in corporate you're like oh thank god payday is friday when you're a entrepreneur, you're like oh my god payday is friday you know the heart attacks that literally the perpetual state of anxiety i go at top in your ship, you're only swinging, oscillating between anxiety and depression. You think about the past and you're depressed about the decisions you've made. You think about the future and you're anxious about the decisions you're about to make. And you have to somehow level, balance that and still operate and function. But it's the reality that all entrepreneurs, that's why we commute with ourselves, because only us can understand what we're going through, especially when you start becoming successful. It's almost easier when you're not successful. The second you become successful, everybody's asking what next, what next, what next, what next, what next, what next, you know? So the pressure is immense. So don't take that for granted. The last part is very functional. Don't play with cash flow. Cash flow is your most important variable. You know, many entrepreneurs come in not understanding that because they're like, oh, no, nah, I don't need to know the finance stuff. You need to know the finance stuff. And your best friend is your profit and loss statement, your balance sheets, and your cash flow and forecasting. Cash flow will make or break you. L'Oreal don't care about cash flow. They don't forecast that hard for cash flow because they have more cash than the United States um, Treasury, right? But when you're a startup, cash is always going to make or break you, especially as you start growing. People think about money in terms of, oh, I have. $20 million in revenue. What you forget, you have to buy the inventory for that $20 million revenue nine months before your customers pay you for it. So you have to find the cash. You have employees, you have to pay every single week, whether you sell products or you don't sell products. So 90% of startups fail within the first two years. And the reason is bad cash flow management. So if you want to run your business, do not take for granted the value of cash. Go and learn that because if you have good cash management practices and you have a good concept, 
that's when I'm going to let you be one of those few businesses that get out of those two-year kind of zones. So that's what I would say. And then the last thing is manage your mental health is very important. Be honest with yourself. Be very, very honest with yourself. It's not an easy role. It's hard. It doesn't get easier. Everybody, you sit down, you go, if I scale, it'll get easier. If I hire a new CEO, it'll get easier. It's just a different level of hard. So you have to understand that you're going to have to be a person who does hard well. You have to be a person who does hard well and choose your hard. And that's why for me, I'm so much into sports and athletes because they're the closest I can get to for that mental agility to be able to push yourself to places that you normally can't push yourself into. So I would go manage your mental health. You're as an entrepreneur, you're at war 247. You're a general. That's what you are. It's not pretty, but you have to find your joy. You have to surround yourself by things that make you happy. And for me, those things are my dog. I go everywhere with my dog. It's non-negotiable. If he can't come, I can't come because he's my mental health externalized for myself he allows me look after somebody who's not myself because I'm not looking after myself right now so looking after him is my wellness is my therapy on Saturdays come rain or sunshine everybody knows do not call me before 1 p.m every other time of the week I'm yours but before 1 p.m I sleep in I meditate I take my dog for a walk I have my time so draw your boundaries draw the things you're going to do around yourself surround yourself with good people have good family around you if you have good family support or good friends so create an ecosystem around yourself that supports you mentally because you are going to need it in your darkest hour and you need those people or those things that you can look at that just pulls you right out of it and then tells you you got this you got this keep going keep going you're almost there Wow, Sharon, that is a fantastic advice. That's really helpful. I could just see it. It's just, wasn't it so honest as well? The future is looking bright. So Sharon Shooter, thank you so much for coming on Secrets of the Side Hustle and telling us all about your amazing business, Oma Beauty. Where can we find out more? Oma Beauty, U-O-M-A Beauty.com. That's our website, Instagram, Oma Beauty, Twitter, TikTok, always Oma Beauty. Find us there in the UK. Go to Harbour Next. We're in Knightsbridge. We're in Liverpool. We're in Manchester. We're in Bristol. We're in Selfridges in three of the four Selfridges doors. We're in John Lewis. And then we're also in online retailers out there. So check us out. Oh, we're in Liberty too. So so check us out at your local. We, we're definitely going to be somewhere around you. So find us. And in a few weeks, we're bringing even more excitement into uh, with our sub-brand into 300 support drug doors so keep your eyes out for that as well so check us out follow us join our movement you got this <laughs> Sharon Jutta great pleasure talking to you thank you so much for your time absolutely no thank you so much guys you've been listening to secrets of the side hustle with Scarlett Russell and our fantastic female founder this week Sharon Shooter. the series producer is Anya Pierce If you enjoyed what you heard, why not follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode? And you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. I'll be back with more Secrets of the Side Hustle next week. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, And it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse. 
Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.